want to say welcome as well to those that are joining us online. Thank you for being with us wherever you are in the world, whether you belong to the story and you're traveling for the summer or whether you are at home, um, shut in, some of you all are sick or recovering from surgery or whatever your situation is today, so grateful that you're here uh, in this way with the story. All right, so today's question, after six questions that were good, today's question's great, all right? So today's question gets right to the point. Today's question that we're going to wrestle with in today's sermon is, how should you pray when your life is a dumpster fire? <laughs> I'm so grateful whoever sent in this question anonymously. I'm so sorry for whatever you're going through that you feel like your life is a dumpster fire. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the term dumpster fire, uh, you may not be young anymore. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly common term now. It can mean any situation that has spun out of control in your life. So examples given would be uh, the United States Congress is a dumpster fire. Um, the Astros rotation is a dumpster fire. I know, it is, sorry. Uh, look, facts are facts, okay? Uh, last night was good, but y'all wait. We need, a, we need a pitcher, all right? Scherzer is who I'm going for. Anybody? All right, I'm off topic. Uh, another example. That preacher's hair is a dumpster. Y'all be nice. Okay. So, you have any idea what it takes to keep this up in the humidity? All right, anyway, <laughs> you get the idea. Uh, it became such a common phrase in 2018 that it was included for the first time as an official word by Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and Webster defined dumpster fire as an utterly calamitous or mismanaged situation or occurrence disaster. Uh, so, how do you pray when your life is an utterly calamitous or mismanaged situation or occurrence? Disaster. <laughs> That's today's question, and it applies to all of us. You might be in a good time right now, but I'm sure you've felt in the past like your life was a dumpster fire. If you haven't, then you one day will, at some point, feel like your life is a dumpster fire, a situation that's just spinning out of control. You have no way of getting on top of it. Like, that's tough. I've been there, but I, I discovered this week that I have this magical ability, this tendency to pack bad memories away and never to revisit them again, almost as if they never happened. And so I had to do a little extra reflection to go into that box and open it up again and remember, yeah, there, was, there have been several times when I was so depressed and my soul was so dark, I just wasn't sure I wanted to like continue, you know, like there have been those moments. I'm up here like acting like happy preacher guy, but I've been in some dark, dark places. Like years ago, my wife and I, Gio and I, we used to fight so much and for so long that it seemed certain that divorce was our destiny as a couple. Like it seemed for sure. And, and more recently, like that was before I was a Christian, but, but now still like becoming a Christian doesn't take that away. Your life can still feel like a dumpster fire when you're a Christian. It happens all the time to Christians. My mom's diagnosis with pancreatic cancer a few months ago wrecked me, sent me to some dark places, right? Feels like it's an utterly calamitous situation or occurrence leading to disaster. Like, that's how it feels. That's how it feels. And perception is reality, as they say sometimes. And when you're a pastor, you also get a window into other people's suffering, right? And that's all right. I'm not complaining. I'm just, that's part of the reason why, why I'm here. But, but I, I think, I thought all week about those four women that I know of in this congregation who have suffered a miscarriage in the last year. And that's just the four that I know of. I'm sure there are more. And they, and in some cases, they and their husbands, like, mourn so deeply. But they mourn in secret because many times no one else knows. Right? And even if you do know, a lot of people move right on as if it's not really a death. But to them it is. It is. And so they're going to a funeral no one else is attending. 
It's a lonely and dark place. And I thought about those four women this week. And I'm sure there are more in this congregation. I thought about the woman who is nursing her husband of 30 plus years, her partner, her soulmate. They've shared everything together. They've raised children together. And now she's nursing him through an early onset dementia diagnosis. And every day he dies a little bit more and she mourns every day. And they call this church home. That's real pain that only she can really know. Every day I think about that father in his 40s who's trying to be a father to his teenage daughter, but she has decided that he's the devil. And there's nothing he can do to change that. He can, he's tried to be tough love guy with her. He's tried to be tender love guy with her. It doesn't matter what he does. He's been a good dad, but in her mind, he's evil incarnate. And he suffers every day. His heart is broken because he wonders if his little girl will ever be his little girl again. That's real pain. I think about the the boy who's in his 20s, who's in this congregation. He's confused about himself. He doesn't know who he is. He's got some identity crisis going on, some sexual identity crisis going on. And and his friends are telling him one thing, and his church told him another thing, and his dad's not talking to him anymore. And and he, he struggles every day and every night. He doesn't know who he is. And those can be some dark places. So how do you pray? How do you pray? There's real pain in this room. And I know I acknowledged that already. We acknowledged that three or so weeks ago when I preached this real fiery sermon about, hey, when times are tough, when you've got a need, ask God to meet it. Remember that prayer? That, that, that sermon, it was a really good sermon. It was, <laughs> if you got something, if you need a miracle, ask. Ask and you shall receive. Don't be afraid to ask for God to move. Ask for God to work. Listen, there's nothing more biblical than that. But there's another kind of prayer that's just as biblical as that, that we, I would say, almost universally ignore. And the kind of prayer I want to talk about today is called lamentation prayer. Lamentation prayer is found in every part of the Bible. It's everywhere. And what sets lamentation part of prayer from what I just described is lamentation prayer does not require an ask. It does not necessarily say, do this specific thing for me. As one theologian named J.I. Packer put it, he said, lamentation prayer is just complaining. We'll get to that quote in just a second. But first I want to tell you, Packer said, lamentation is just complaining. Complaining to God. And why does it feel so foreign to us? Because we think complaining is a waste of time. How often do you think that? How often do you say that to your kids or to yourself? The complaint department is closed. It does no good to complain. Don't complain to me. I don't complain to you. Let's all pretend like it's all good. And let's try to fix our problems. That's how we think. That's not how the writers of the Bible thought. And so in every section of scripture, there is an element of lament. Plain and simple. Let me give you an example. This is from a prophet named Habakkuk. This is from chapter 1. Of his book, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And this is what he says to God. This is a man of God, a prophet. He says, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Who does he think he is to talk to God that way? That's courageous to talk to your creator with such an attitude. And this is everywhere in the Bible. Read the Psalms. Listen, 
Psalm 88 is the most depressing thing I've ever read in my life. And it's in the Bible. Psalm 88, the psalmist writes, he's, he's like, uh, I am in the darkest place I've ever been and you put me here. And darkness is my closest friend. And then it ends. That's the end of Psalm 88. Darkness is my closest friend. What? Isn't there supposed to be more verses to this? You're not supposed to end a psalm with, hello, darkness, my old friend. Like, it's supposed to be something more. But no, it ends with the darkness. It ends with the complaining, with the lamentation. And for us, that's so outside of our nature. But as uh, Packer, uh, the J.I. Packer, the theologian I mentioned earlier said, he said, in the Bible, when bad things happen to good people, they complain with great freedom and considerable length to their God. And scripture does not seem to regard these complaining prayers as anything other than wisdom. Wisdom. How is lamentation wisdom? How is it a wise thing to do whenever things seem like, they're, like all is lost? When your life is a dumpster fire, how is it wisdom to complain and just to complain to God? This is a lamentation prayer. Another way I've, I thought about it this week is like lamentation prayer is, is you know, it, it's just like protesting. It's just like, one guy called it WTF prayer. I don't know if I can say that. But it's worship, theology, and fundamentals. No, you know what. Anyway, uh, that's for the kids. It's like, why God? Shaking your fists at the heavens. What is going on? What are you doing here? And there's virtue and wisdom in that alone. Um, tomorrow, we're releasing a, a, a new episode, one of the ones I've been most excited about of the Maybe God podcast. And so if you don't know what the Maybe God podcast is, I beg you to do that, to look it up, find it, subscribe to it, leave good reviews for it. Don't leave bad reviews for it, but just the good ones. And um, it's a project that I do along with uh, the producer, Julie Miraculous, who's uh, here today. And... Um, and we, uh, we tackle tough questions. And the one we've been talking about is the border crisis. And this is an hour plus episode on the border crisis. And Julie went to San Antonio to, for part of this episode and she interviewed a pastor named John Garland who runs a hospitality house where migrants find shelter and food. Migrants coming from all over, mostly Central America. And he talked about how almost without fail, every one of those migrants who finds their way to him has been traumatized. They've experienced some kind of real trauma. So that's why they're here, right? Because back home, it was an untenable situation. They didn't just decide to go on a trip one day. Like it was deep poverty at best, but in a lot of cases it was violence, uh, some cases domestic violence, sexual violence, um, um, unable to feed their kids, like gang violence, all kinds of awful situations. And then on the way here, there's another set of traumas, right? A lot of trafficking and taking advantage of people on the way here. It's an awful, awful situation. But then he said something really interesting. He said the reason Christianity resonates with 90 plus percent of these migrants, the reason they are so enthusiastic about their faith is because Christianity is a trauma religion. Christianity was born out of trauma. And he kind of has a point, if you think about it. Our favorite symbol is a torture device, the cross. 
our favorite meal is a bloodbath. It's commemorating the time a man was ripped apart in front of everybody and his blood was poured out in front of everybody. And we commemorate that every week together. Why? Because the Christian movement was born out of trauma for traumatized people. And it was in that trauma that Jesus prayed lamentation prayers. Remember the last prayer that he prayed was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the moments before that, when he was being led to the cross and the people that loved him and followed him were congregating around him to offer their support and to grieve with him and to bear witness, this is what happened in the Gospel of Luke. So this is Luke chapter 23. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they see Simon from Serene, who was on his way home. They put the cross on him and made him carry it. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned, even in his... In his trauma, he turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. And then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is still green, what will happen when it is dry? Leave that up for a second. Let me just explain what's happening here. Jesus is giving his followers permission to lament. And what he is saying is, you're lamenting now while I'm still here. He is the tree. The tree is still green, right? He's often referred to as a tree, like an organic reference to Jesus. Like when it's green, he's there in front of them. And they're still weeping, wailing. He said, what will you do when the tree is dry? And so if, when things are good, when God is near and you're weeping then, how bad will it get? What will your response be when God might as well be a million miles away? When you feel entirely alone in the universe, how will you respond? And Jesus here seems to be preemptively encouraging, welcoming the lament of his followers. It's like, look, it's bad now, but it's going to get worse sometimes. Cry out. You'll cry out. And the implication here being that he will listen. He gave them permission. He anticipated their lamentation. So I think Pastor Garland's right. Christianity really was born out of trauma for traumatized people. And if you keep your trauma from him, you're missing it. In that uh, episode that's coming out tomorrow, um, we interviewed a woman named Santos. Santos stole our hearts. Santos is a woman from Honduras. And without telling you too much of her story, she endured for many months daily beatings and sexual violence at the hands of the same aggressor, the same attacker. It's a hell on earth situation. You see her and she looks so sweet and, and helpless and situation like that. And one night, her 16-year-old daughter came home to find that man wrapping a cord around her neck. And the daughter intervened. Somehow they got away together. And somehow, on foot, they escaped Honduras and made their way to the U.S. An unbelievable journey. 
with unimaginable trauma. And when they got here, the border guard that was checking them in, that they reported to, one of them doubted that the daughter's documents were legit. He said she must be forging her documents. She doesn't look 16, she looks much older, much more mature. And so they took the daughter from her family and put her in an adult detention facility, an adult prison, away from her mom. And the mother frantically found her way to San Antonio and found her way to John Garland, the pastor. And together they tried for months to locate her daughter. I can't imagine, I just cannot imagine coping with all of that. But the most amazing thing about Santos and people like Santos is that in spite of everything, she never stopped praying. She prays when she's happy. She's pray, she prays when she's depressed. She prays when she's angry. She keeps praying and fasting. I wanted to share this clip with you. It's a couple minutes long, a clip of tomorrow's episode of Maybe God. In addition to prayer and worship, Santos expresses her devotion to God by fasting. Pues, la oración es algo muy lindo. Prayer is very beautiful. You communicate with God. When you fast and truly ask God from your heart, God resolves your problems. I like to fast often to have better communication with God. When you enter into that communication, you can feel something divine, something beautiful to be talking to God. When Santos needed strength to see her daughter Haiti inside the adult detention center, she fasted for days prior to their visit. She says God gave her enough strength not only to survive seeing her daughter in those conditions, but also for the devastating news that she just didn't see coming. Terminando los días de ayuno y yéndola ver a ella. Towards the end of that fast, I went to see her and was also hit with the news that my son was dead. God gave me strength to face what had happened. She had to leave two kids behind. A lot of times these families have to make choices about the children they take. And they'll generally take the girls, the ones who are most vulnerable or the youngest. And she, in this case, had to leave behind two sons. And the night before she was released from the detention, she got the news that her youngest son had been killed. And so dealing with that was, was really just awful. And she ends by saying, but I give thanks to God. Faith is always a miracle. Faith is always a gift. It is astounding to see people continually to cry out to God after they've been through such horrors. That's uh, Pastor John Garland's voice you heard there. How, how does someone go, going through that, what Santos went through, continues to go, how does she keep praying? How does she keep praying faithfully? How does she keep praying at all? Like, how many of us would just give up on God? 
I think the answer is um, that Santos believes God to the point of trusting him. And when the word of God says to her that God's not finished yet, that he's not done creating, redeeming, and restoring, when the word of God says to her that Jesus is coming back to make everything that's wrong right again and to heal every wound and brokenness, and that one day, no matter how much bad news this world throws at her, it pales in comparison to the good news of Jesus and his kingdom yet to come, she believes him. She believes God. She trusts that God is not finished yet and that there's something better that's yet to come that she'll be with her baby boy. Again, the one she had to leave behind, the one who was taken from this earth by violence. She will see him again and she trusts in that and she prays according to that hope for that future something. And that idea of the future something, that's something theologians call eschatology, which is uh, it's something we all, you have an eschatology no matter where you are on, in your faith. Your eschatology is just what you believe about what is to come, what's going to happen. What are we doing here? Where, where is all of this leading? It's been really interesting to me lately. Y'all know I'm a YouTube nerd. I'm a conspiracy theory nerd. I've been looking at YouTube clips with really smart scientists and social thinkers that are all about eschatology now. They're not Christians, and they don't have a Christian eschatology, but they have an eschatology. They're like, as soon as those robots become smarter than us, we're done. We're done for. That's their eschatology. Artificial intelligence is taking over, and that's their eschatology. Or some others will say the same thing about climate change or about some other kind of impending crisis, we're all doomed. I saw The Lion King yesterday, totally unrelated, but I'm going to tell you a story anyway. <laughs> Anybody see the new Lion King yet? Beyonce forever. Uh, the, the Timon and Pumbaa get philosophical in this Lion King. Unlike in the first one, they're like, there's no circle of life. There is just a line. And once you get to the end of the line, we're done. That's it. And so it doesn't matter what we do for anyone else in the circle. Just do what's right for you. That's their eschatology. And by the end of it, they're redeemed to a better eschatology, but that's just a preacher's version of the Lion King. Anyway, are you with me still? Okay, everybody has an eschatology. Everybody has some idea of what is to come. So what is the Christian Eschatology, it is one that is essentially hopeful. Christian eschatology holds that God is still at work in the world. And Santos continues to pray because she knows one day she will see it. The Bible paints a different picture. And you should know that it is all based on the resurrection of Jesus. So our hope for the future is based on a past event. The resurrection of Jesus was God's seal of his promise to restore and resurrect us all.
okay? This is from uh, Paul, and this is 1 Corinthians 15. This is a great explanation of Christian eschatology. And the Apostle Paul writes this. Y'all listen to his imagery. This is profound. He said, I will tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then, then the saying that is written will be true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting, your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. That's uh, religious law, religion. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, far from ignoring the pain of death and decay that surrounds us all, Christian eschatology, the Bible suggests that death and decay, though real, will never have the last word. That God is doing something else. I wanted to sum up for you a, a memorable eight-word sort of slogan motto for Christian eschatology, for what we believe is about to happen. And this is it. This is the eight-word Christian eschatology. Though death seems certain, God's new creation comes. I love what the Bible does with this idea. Every time, just about every time the Bible mentions what's to come. It does so with music, musical instruments, uh, musical imagery. So you heard Paul. What, what instrument did Paul use in 1 Corinthians? The trumpet. That's a common one, right? There's always trumpets in this Christian vision of the future. But there's not just trumpets. There's entire horn sections in other passages that the future is discussed. There's strings in some others. There are drums in another passage. There's cymbals clashing in another passage. Um, in some passages in the book of Revelation, there is a choir. A choir is getting ready to sing to God in the eschaton. It would seem as though a Christian understanding of what is to come has something to do with a symphony. That God is readying an orchestra and he's about to pull off something beautiful. But have you ever been to the orchestra? I'm assuming you have. If you have, you know that if you went to the orchestra and you showed up a little bit early, which I know for the story people is not a regular occurrence, but just work with me here. You showed up a little bit early. This is probably what you heard. you've never been to the orchestra. If somebody gave you a ticket to this thing, said, show up to this, it'll change your life. It'll be the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. And you show up, you're so excited, you show up early. You take your seat, and that noise starts. You wonder to yourself, what in the world is going on here? 
are these even professional musicians? They're not even playing the same song. They're not on the same page. It's total chaos. No wonder this guy gave me a free ticket to this thing. Like, is this like a middle school band? What is going on here? But if you've seen an orchestra before, then you know that chaos is a preamble and that something better is coming. You know that all that discord, all that dissonance, all that discomfort and chaos in the rehearsal, it was just God preparing something better, right? They were just tuning the instruments. They were just getting ready. And there's something more that's about to happen. This is why lamentation prayer makes sense. Because when you know the discord will resolve, then it makes sense to go to God with all of your heart complaining about these present circumstances while you trust something else is on the way. It baffles the mind, I think, that God wants this from us. But listen, God wants your lament. He wants you to open your broken heart to him, to share with him your disappointment and your grief. He wants it from you. And he doesn't judge you for it. He doesn't smite you for it. He wants it from you. Why? Because when you complain to God, it shows that you trust him. And you complain about your present circumstances, you acknowledge the eschatology, the eschatological hope that we have for the future. Yes, things are bad and I acknowledge that. Death and decay is all around me. Darkness is my closest friend. But I know, God, something else is coming. God wants that from you because that's how you talk when you love somebody. When you really love somebody and you know they're upset with you, you don't want to find out about it from somebody else. You don't want to stumble onto their Facebook page and find out they've been posting about you negative things. You don't want to go to a Reddit thread and find out all these awful things they've been saying about you. No, you want to hear it straight from them because you love them. And that's what love looks like. It's going straight to God with your lament. God, I'm lost. I'm broken. I'm so sad. I'm so alone. I'm so afraid. God, I'm depressed. I'm in a dark place, God. Sharing your heart in that way, that's intimacy. That's trust. So if you're feeling forsaken, Tell him. God wants to hear that from you. And as you share your broken heart with God, remember, he's still at work, creating, restoring, and redeeming you from the mess that you're in to something much more beautiful. And so pray with all of your heart to your Father who loves you. Would you join me in prayer? God, help us to trust you with our trauma. 
whatever we have been through, whatever we've seen, the news, even the news is so depressing. It's traumatic to see the way things often go in this world. God, we know you don't want us to keep that from you. You don't want us to pretend like everything's fine. Help us to be honest, willing to be vulnerable, even willing to be angry with you and before you as we cling to our hope that though the world is a mess today, it won't always be. And though our life may feel like a dumpster fire now, that won't always be the case. I thank you, Father, for loving us the way that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.